thank you so much. I'm really excited about this uh, class that uh, Dave Wetzel and I will be co-teaching. This first session is going to be more introductory on the whole topic of apologetics. And then after this, uh, Dave will be getting into the issue of science and creationism. And then I'll follow up in the latter half of the class with dealing with some of the philosophical objections to Christianity. So the whole idea here is understanding what apologetics is. And let me just give you a little bit of my background with apologetics. Dave mentioned, a, I think it was two Sundays ago when we had our Vision Sunday and expressed the ongoing plan for this class, uh, that I did get my doctorate in apologetics. And I finished that this past May, last May of 2018. Actually, just to give you some personal background on that, when I was looking at where to get what concentration for my PhD, I'd wanted to do a concentration in biblical studies, like Old Testament theology or New Testament theology, because that was really the area that I, I loved. Uh, the school that I got my PhD at didn't offer a modular program in the PhD uh, level for that kind of concentration. So I would have had to actually move from Charlotte, North Carolina to Louisville, Kentucky to be able to get that degree. And I wasn't willing to uproot and do all that. So I looked at the courses that were offered uh, for modular students. And I looked at the Christian philosophy concentration. I looked at the, there was a, uh, some ethics, an ethics concentration, several others, but the one that really stood out to me was one that was called Apologetics and Worldviews. So that was the concentration that I was accepted into, and that's the one that I uh, completed there this past May. I mentioned this when I was candidating this past fall. The dissertation that I wrote was on the apologetic approach of Blaise Pascal. And uh, if you're interested in that, I think you can find the full text of it. I know someone is actually reading it right now. I feel sorry for you. But, you know, I, I, it was enjoyable for me to write, and I think it's worth reading too. But it is the, the nature of academic writing tends to be more technical, and so that might be why it's not, it's not like a riveting novel, right? It's not going to keep you up late at night. In fact, if you tr struggle with uh, insomnia, I recommend that to you as a solution. It might put you to sleep. But, uh, it certainly didn't put me to sleep when I was writing it. It actually kept me awake for many months, as my wife can testify. All right, we are dealing with this whole question of apologetics. What is apologetics? And why should we do it? What does it mean for us as Christians? Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you so much that we can study this topic. Thank you for the joy of knowing Christ and knowing the fullness of everything that you have revealed to us in your word. It is so precious to us. And we not only want to defend it with our minds, but commend it with our lives. I pray that you would help us to understand these things as we apply our minds and hearts to them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want us to do a little simple exercise, and that is evaluating the first couple lines in a very well-known children's song. What is one of the most well-known children's songs? First one that comes to your mind. Jesus, Jesus loves me. <laughs> How many of you said something different than Jesus loves me? Raise your hand few brave, honest souls. <laughs> Jesus loves me. Okay, let's just say that. What, what's, what comes after that? Jesus loves me, this I know, and then what? For? Okay, what's going on there? There's a statement, Jesus loves me. That's the declaration. And then it goes on to explain what? How what? How we know. 
So here's a statement of faith. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Okay, that's right. We believe that. On the heels of that statement of faith, a declaration of faith, there is a statement to fortify that or to supply a reason for that, right? Jesus loves me, and then there's a word about our mental grasp of that. This I know, and then we have this word that explains, okay, how, upon what grounds? And upon what grounds would we say, I know that Jesus loves me, according to the song? For the Bible tells me so, okay? So what this song is saying is that the Word of God is a sufficient reason to fortify and undergird my conviction that Jesus loves me. The reason why I'm saying this is because even on a very simple level, a level so simple that we teach it to children in the form of a song, we're doing what we would call apologetics. And that is supplying a reason for what, what we believe. That makes sense to you? Here is, even on a simple level, a song for children that we all know. Not just a song for children, obviously. This is good for adults, too. But immediately after that first phrase, we're giving reasons. Here is why we know that Jesus loves me. Now, let's go a little further. Is that enough for everybody? The reason that was given, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me no. Is that enough for everybody? No, no. Because if you were to tell someone who did not believe the Bible, Jesus loves you, you can know this, for the Bible tells you so. What might they say? Show me what? Okay. Show you the Bible. What, what verse would you go to? A billion verses. John 3.16. You read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then you ask your friend, now do you believe it? And he says, I don't even believe the Bible. Okay. So we have a... A grounding of a theological statement, that is that Jesus loves us, that is sufficient for some, but not all. Right? And herein lies the need for apologetics. We have this need to, to undergird what we believe with what we understand. Now, I, I tell you that because it's obvious that apologetics is something that we do all the time. Even in our songs, even in the way we talk to people, even in the way that we preach, the books that we read. And the way we witness to people, we're giving a reason for our faith. We're presenting something that makes sense to people's minds to undergird and fortify these theological statements. I want to take you to 1 Peter. I'm actually just going to read to you 1 Peter. You have that on your handout. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 is the classic statement on apologetics in Scripture. We're going to dig deeply into that a little later on in this lesson. For now, I simply want to read that. Do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Instead, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared to offer a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope within you. And now I have a quote from a book called The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. The author summarizes the mindset of the early Christians. I think this is so interesting because it resonates with what we read in the book of Acts. He says this, From the beginning, Christians were conscious of the other. 
What he means by the other is people that don't believe like they do. They're very aware. You see this all throughout the book of Acts. When Paul gets up to preach, he is giving reasons as to why someone should believe. Christians were always aware, conscious of the other. The first Christians had to explain to their fellow Jews why they venerated a man who had been executed by the Romans. Within a few decades of Jesus' death, as some Christians ceased observing the Jewish law, Christian leaders had to answer charges that they had abandoned the ancient traditions of the Jewish people. Later in Greece, as Paul began to move beyond the Jewish world to address the Gentiles, the citizens of Athens asked him to justify his new teaching. It sounds rather strange to our ears, they said, so we would like to know what it means. That, my friends, is the whole motive for apologetics. This idea that people that don't believe because they don't understand the truth of Christian teaching are saying, this sounds strange. We would like to understand what this means. Now, let me ask this question that frames the first section in this lesson here. Where is apologetics in the Bible? Now, I already pointed out one place we find it in the Bible. Where is that? 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, is that the only place we find apologetics in the Bible? No. Where else, maybe some of you know, where else do we find some apologetics in the Bible? I think in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel starts to teach it to their children. Okay, very good. Okay. Right. Yeah, they're, they're passing on the, the beliefs about who Yahweh, Jehovah God is. Great. Yes, Jerry. Acts 17, Paul, and Marcel. Excellent. Acts 17, another classic passage in the scripture on apologetics. We will talk about that one as well. Where else do you see apologetics in the Bible? Anybody? I'm sorry? Okay. The Great Commission, where Jesus is commanding his disciples to go and teach the gospel. And teaching may be implying some aspect of making intelligible or answering questions about the Christian faith. Okay, but what I want to show you is that in the New Testament, we have an apologetic concern that is supporting much of what is being written. For example, in Luke-Acts, now I say Luke-Acts because Luke and Acts were both written by whom? Okay, they're both written by Luke, so it is, they form a kind of, uh, it seems like it would have been a trilogy, like he almost intended to write a third one, which for whatever reason he didn't, or we at least hasn't come down to us as inspired scripture, but he had, he wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then as a sequel, he wrote the book of Acts. So the, the Luke focuses on Jesus and what he did, what he taught and accomplished, and Acts focuses on what continued to happen through the work of Jesus after Jesus dispensed the Holy Spirit to his disciples. But as we read Luke and Acts, what we begin to see is that what's going on is Luke is presenting reasons to a skeptical audience as to why they should believe the claims of Jesus. So take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. What we're doing is seeing how apologetics is throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, specifically in this Luke-Acts, the books of Luke and Acts. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Does anybody know who's preaching in this passage? This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. He's saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, now listen closely. Again, the question is, where do we see apologetics that is giving an answer for what we believe? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Where's the apologetics there? Yeah, it's, it's the fact that they saw. There, there were miracles that validated the claims of Jesus Christ. Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. You don't make a statement like that without backing it up with something miraculous. And Jesus backed up his miraculous teaching with signs, with miracles. And Peter is saying, I'm proclaiming to you that this man is the anointed Christ. And you want to know why you should believe that? Because he did miracles. In fact, here is the ultimate miracle. What is the ultimate authentication of Jesus' identity? Anybody know what's the ultimate authentication of that? The resurrection from the dead. And that's what Peter proclaims. He says, God has, God has declared Jesus Christ as the Son of God. How did he authenticate that? By the resurrection. You know. You saw the empty tomb. Over 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time. We have seen him. That's apologetics. It's presenting a reason to believe. We also see this in... Verses 32 through 33, this is where he does focus on the, the resurrection. Being, this is Acts chapter 2, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, that would have been a good evidence for people that were skeptical about the identity of Jesus. But what about Jewish people that were steeped in their traditions and scriptures who are wondering, how in the world is this consistent at all with the Old Testament? Well, that's why you have Peter quoting so much of the Old Testament. What is he doing? He's presenting reasons to believe to people who already believe the Old Testament. And he's saying, see, what Jesus is doing is not in contradiction with, but it complements exactly what you already believe. He's presenting reasons to believe. He's doing apologetics. There's another interesting theme throughout Luke-Acts. And that is, this whole presentation of the Christian faith is not antithetical to government. Because there was a lot of concern here that the Christian sect, if you will, or the, Christian, the group of Christians were planning to subvert the government or to overthrow government. And you see a concern in Luke's writings to say, no, 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 Jesus is not anti-government. Paul is not anti-government. Peter is not anti-government. Does that mean they obey the government in every respect? No, it doesn't. It means that they have a higher authority, but it is not the agenda of Christianity to supplant the government. That's an apologetic concern. That's what we call a political apologetic. Do you remember one very famous case in which Jesus expressed the importance of loyalty both to Caesar and to God? Remember they brought him the, the tax, a coin, and they said, is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not? They thought that he had trapped him. They thought that if he said, well, no, then he was going to stoke the ire of the Jews. If he said uh, that it was, if he said, yes, it is lawful, then he was going to stoke the ire of the Jews. If he said, no, it's not lawful, then Jesus would be a mere uh, insurrectionist. And yet Jesus said, render to Caesar, what? The things that are Caesar and 
to God the things that are God's. What is Luke's point in, in that? It's an apologetic concern saying, no, Jesus' agenda is not to overthrow government. He said himself, my kingdom is not of this world. And that Jesus ultimately will overthrow every government as the King of kings and Lord of lords and himself reign forever. But for now, this is the nature of Christianity, coexisting with human governments, although answerable to a higher government. You see this also with Paul in the book of Acts. There are many incidences in which Paul has run-ins with the authorities. And what is Luke, as the author of this book, what is Luke concerned to do? Luke is concerned to present Paul as being a law-abiding citizen. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was preaching the gospel. There came this demon-possessed girl who had some ability to tell the future and was uh, making a fortune up for her owners. Paul cast the demon out of her. They lost their hope of income. They get mad, they throw Paul into jail, and they accuse him of causing a riot. What is Luke's point, in one of the points that he has, in recording that event? Paul didn't cause that riot. Paul was just preaching the gospel. What about the riot in Ephesus? You have this massive uh, group of people that have thronged into the gathering place. And for the space of hours, they're saying, Great is Diana of Ephesians! Great is Diana of Ephesians! And it takes the city clerk to come in and calm them all down. And Luke's point again in recording that is what one of the things that he wanted to us to understand is Christianity is not a religion of insurrection. This is not a religion meant to overthrow the government. Why is, this, why is this important? It's important because it's defending and commending the cause of Christ. This is, this is apologetics that's going on here. Let's go to Acts chapter 17 now. Again, what we're doing is seeing where we find apologetics in the Bible, where we find this whole idea of giving a reason to believe, or at least silencing the objections to people who are skeptical to Christianity. Acts chapter 17 is one of the most interesting um, incidents of apologetics in the book of Acts because unlike most other dialogues that Peter or Paul is having with people, in this dialogue, Paul is speaking not to Jews, but to whom? He's speaking to Gentiles. Jews have their scriptures that they already believe. And so when Peter and Paul are reasoning with Jews, what did they use when reasoning with Jews? Yeah, they're using the Old Testament. When Paul is speaking to this group of, of people on, in Athens, it would be pointless for him to use the Old Testament, right? They don't know it, they, or to, if they know it, it doesn't really carry any weight with them. So what is Paul going to do when trying to commend Christianity, when trying to explain Christianity? Because they've already heard it, and they've heard about the resurrection from the dead, and they're thinking, that is ridiculous. And Paul goes through the city of Athens, and he begins to see some things that are even more ridiculous. He sees idols. He sees one, a, a monument that says, to the unknown God, just in case we left anybody out. And so Paul begins to speak to them. He says in verse 22 of Acts 17, 
Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I think that he got a smile and nod from that. Mm, thank you. We are. Yes. A good public speaker. Way to begin by commending the audience. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. And now here Paul gets down to business. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, notice very carefully what Paul is doing. He is snatching a candle of truth from their own beliefs to illuminate the inner inconsistencies of their worldview. Paul is snatching the candle of truth from their own beliefs to illuminate the inner inconsistencies of their worldview. Why does he do that? To open up their worldview for something that is actually true. And that is what good apologetics does. It says, now if you believe that and you believe that, these things don't match. So now we've got this tension within your system of beliefs Maybe you should abandon that. That's what Paul is doing here. And you see how he does that. Because he is saying, I've observed your idols, and I've also read your poets. And your poets say, for example, in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, if we are in fact the offspring of God... Why do you represent God as if he's made out of things like wood and stone and gold and bronze? Now, surely this is ridiculous. Surely if in him we move and have our being, he cannot be contained by us, by your temple. Surely he is the one that created heaven and earth. And if that's the case, why should it be so ridiculous that he would raise a man from the dead? You see what Paul did? He, he, he just snatched the candle from their own poets who had a glimmer of truth to illuminate the vast inconsistencies within their worldview. And what is the result of that kind of thing? Taking these cherished cultural items, the poets and the worship of many deities, to say something's wrong here. You can't have both. Now, is it so unreasonable to suppose that God could raise a man from the dead? Is it so unreasonable to suppose that God has now overlooked these times of ignorance and now is saying, there is going to be a day of judgment? What happened? Well, look at verse 32. The response of the people in Acts chapter 17 on that hill, the Areopagus, typifies the response that we still get when we present a reasoned explanation of the gospel. And that is this. Some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. But some believed. You see that? This is a threefold response. There can be mockery. That's to be expected. There might be interest. That's to be hoped for. And there might be faith. That is to be long and prayed for, the ultimate goal of apologetics. But you, you see what's going on here. There is an apologetic concern undergirding the book of Acts, as it did also Luke. 
Now, so we see that the whole question is words apologetics in the Bible. We see this also in other of Paul's writings, in Romans 1. Uh, we don't have time to get there right now. Also in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go to there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We're still on Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, those of you who know 1 Corinthians 15, what proposition of the Christian faith is Paul defending in this chapter? What is it? The resurrection. The resurrection that was cast in doubt for whatever reason there in the church of Corinth. And what reasons does Paul present as to why one should believe in the resurrection? Well, he says, he says this in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What phrase was he, did he repeat there? In accordance with the Scriptures. That's important for those who already believe the Jewish Scriptures. What is going on here is not in conflict with God's prior revelation. But... Here is what he says to silence all doubts. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why is it important that some are still alive at that point? That's right. You can say, Paul is essentially saying, and if you are still wondering about that, you can go ask them. He is presenting an evidence for the Christian faith. You see this apologetic concern. Now, that's in Paul's writings. Let's turn to John's writings. And I will only point out two passages here. Go to the book of John, chapter 1. We don't normally think about John addressing in a, an apologetic way the skeptical minds of Jews and Greeks. But what is going on with John's use of the term word there in verse 1 is very interesting. The Greek word is logos, which to the Greeks would have evoked this idea of the cosmic order that brought the universe into existence. John here is doing a similar thing to what Paul did on Athens. He's drawing from something in their worldview that they already accept, and he's demonstrating how that Christianity makes it so much, is so much superior to that. You know about the Logos? You know about this eternal word, this eternal logic or reason that governs the cosmos? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now John makes the most astonishing claim about this logos. And that is something that the Greeks would never have believed. And that is, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, they had this idea that there was a vast difference between the spirit world and the physical world. And yet here in the Christian faith, we believe that God himself has come in the flesh as Jesus Christ. 
John is giving a statement that would resonate with the philosophy of the Greeks at the time, and, and yet also with the Jews, because this would have reminded the Jews of a passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 8, where you have this uh, personification of, does anybody know? Wisdom. Wisdom is personified here as, a, uh, as being present with God at creation. And so both to Jews and to Greeks, John is commending the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's giving a reason to believe. Second, in John, I want you to turn to John chapter 20. Why does John record all these miracles? Again, there is an apologetic concern here. John chapter 20, verse... Uh, we'll read verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written... Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John is presenting reasons to believe. What are these reasons? These reasons are the miracles that Jesus has done. And here's why you should believe. We find apologetics in Luke Acts, and Paul's writings, and John's writings. And then let's go to that classic text that we began with, 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, what we're doing is seeing where we find apologetics in the Bible, particularly the New Testament. <clears throat> it's important to note the context of 1 Peter 3 and the, the epistle of Peter. He's addressing Christians as they are facing persecution and pressure for what they believe. And Peter's exhortation to these believers is that they should maintain a solid testimony for Christ. They shouldn't abandon their beliefs. They shouldn't give the enemy any cause to cast doubt upon their beliefs because of their bad behavior. And they should not be intimidated. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 14. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Now, the word defense is the Greek word apologia. That's the word we get apologetics from. It's this, this word of, of reply, uh, a reasoned discourse, an answer to a question. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, uh, you see it on the other side of your handout there is other places that same word occurs. So the word that's translated in the English Standard Version, defense, also occurs in these seven other passages, a total of eight times in the New Testament. But look at what's going on here before we move on from 1 Peter 3. The impulse for apologetics is sanctifying Christ as Lord. In other words, it's important as we think about defending the faith and giving an answer to those who question that our desire is not to make a name for ourselves. 
This is where many of people who have loved apologetics have fallen by the wayside, or at least gotten caught up in things that are unnecessary and even counterproductive, and that they want to win an argument. Right? The point of apologetics is not to win arguments. The point of apologetics is to win people to Christ. That's why apologetics must begin with a sanctifying Christ as Lord in my heart. Christ is Lord of my heart. And because He is Lord of my heart, I want Him to be Lord of your heart too. I want you to find the joy that I have found in Christ. I'm not intimidated by you. I'm not fearful of your objections because Jesus is my Lord and I'm sanctifying Him as Lord in my heart. And that's why I'm so ready to give an answer to anybody who says, why do you have that kind of hope? Why do you have that kind of faith? What do you mean by that? I'm so ready. Apologetics, my friends, is a mandate that we have. This is not something that's reserved for the intellectual people that like to argue, okay? This is something that all of us as believers must do in response to sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. Why? As we do that, we want to be ready to answer someone who, who, who says, why do you believe the way you believe? Or, or how could you believe that? You can say, well, here's an answer. Here's a reply. The mandate is to sanctify Christ as Lord. The method is being ready to give a defense. And what's the manner? The manner we see in verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. My friends, this is something that Christians have often failed to do in apologetics. I've... I've watched apologetic debates between a Christian and an unchristian, and it seems like all the Christian was trying to do was to slam and, and corner and, and tear apart. Now, there is some intellectual sparring that must take place, but the manner in which we do apologetics as Christians should be with respect and gentleness. Why? Because we're trying to win them, not just win an argument. And good conscience and an irreproachable testimony. I love this. When, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They don't have anything bad to say about you. Like if you're going to slander a Christian, you can't slander them. This is, this is ideally. You shouldn't be able to slander them because of anything that they have done wrong. Because they have an irreproachable testimony. That's apologetics right there. Now, that takes us to this Final question, not a final question, but the next question. You see I have three more on the sheet here. Uh, I want to define apologetics. Christian apologetics means commending God's wisdom, its truth, goodness, and beauty as displayed in the cross of Christ. I'm going to take a little time to explain what I mean by that. We often think of apologetics in terms of making an argument or defending against some sort of rational attack on the Christian faith. But what I want to tell you is apologetics is broader than that. It does involve the mind. It does involve arguments. It does involve these, uh, these kinds of um, this rational argumentation. However, it also involves the character of the apologist. It also involves what we'll call beauty. So here's what those three blanks here. Here's what goes in those blanks. Apologetics requires 
propositions, plots, and practices. Propositions, plots, and practices. Now, those three words correspond with what I have in between the dashes, truth, uh, Actually, I swapped goodness and beauty. So truth would correspond to propositions. Goodness would correspond to practices. And beauty would correspond to plots. And by plots, I mean he here like, uh, like the sequence in a story uh, or, or um, something more artistic or aesthetic. So if you have a background in philosophy, you might correspond propositions with epistemology, plots with aesthetics, and practices with ethics. Apologetics requires propositions, plots, and practices. Here's what I mean by propositions, is that in apologetics, we have to defend and explain certain statements, a proposition. What are some propositions or statements of, of our Christian faith that we, that we must commend or defend? Give me some example of things, yes? Yes, okay, exactly. That, that's a classic one. That's perfect. The Trinity. And, and how would you express that in a proposition, in a statement? Three persons exist in one God. Okay, there are three persons, yet one God. Now, what, what is the responsibility of apologetics with regard to that statement? Give examples from Scripture as to where that occurs. Okay, let's assume that we've already established that from Scripture. Let's assume that, we've, that, that Scripture is clear that this is the case. So we're not arguing, say, with a Jehovah's Witness who would deny that, but we're just saying to someone who is a, just a curious or even skeptical person, how can you believe this, this? I can understand three, and I can understand one. Right? I, I get that. That's pretty clear. Three, one. No problem there. But three and one? Explain what you mean there. That's when apologetics comes in, right? And why is that necessary? Because if a person says, that doesn't make sense. Your whole thing falls apart. Forget that. Right? No, no, no. Let, let, me, let me explain this to you in a way that may not, you, you may not find absolutely rationally satisfactory, but you'll at least understand why it's worth believing. The proposition that God is three in one. Um, here's another proposition of a Christian faith. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. What does apologetics do for that statement? Well, let, let's talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection. Uh, what about this? God created the world in six days. This is the, the area that, that Dave uh, will focus on. Well, what's, what is there in terms of, of science and, and history and even philosophy that we could draw on to say that this is a, a true statement of, of Christian faith? This is the propositions of Christianity that we can present and to commend the wisdom of God. But what about this idea of, of plots? Here, here's what I mean by that. With, with plots, this idea of beauty, we're demonstrating the inner coherence of the Christian faith. We're demonstrating the fittingness of it. I'll give you an example. There is a fittingness of justice to crime, right? There, there's a fittingness of, of, of wrath, the wrath of God to the sin of human beings. 
within Christianity, you have this idea that God's justice has been offended, and so there must be retribution. You see, people have a hard time with the wrath of God on the one hand, but then they become so angry at the, at the wickedness of human beings. Today is the, uh, they call it, is it Holocaust Memorial Day? And people are, are tweeting and Facebooking and putting out articles on social media and calling out, the, you know, remembering the, the Holocaust and, and attacking people who are Holocaust deniers and, and all this because we recognize that this utter, the utter wickedness. And yet when it comes to the wrath of God, the same people who decry the wickedness of man would say, well, that's too much, right? See, there, there is a fittingness in justice. There is a beauty to justice. And part of what apologetics would do is to commend the beauty of God's ways. To, be, to, to demonstrate the, the inner coherence and fittingness of the Christian faith. And then this idea of practices. That is, uh, let me just go back to the plots here to, to help fill this out for you. This would be, for example, the role of, how many of you have read anything by C.S. Lewis? Raise your hand, C.S. Lewis. Okay, so C.S. Lewis although I, I don't give a blanket endorsement of everything that he wrote or some of the theological nuances that he does or doesn't make, yet what he's doing is a kind of, in the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, uh, he's doing a kind of uh, aesthetic apologetics uh, in terms of the, the plots that he unfolds there in, in demonstrating the inner coherence of a Christian worldview that many people have found very compelling. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the Russian... A novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, particularly his novel *The Brothers Karamazov*. Uh, this is an example of aesthetics, aesthetic apologetics, and then this idea of practices, believers living godly lives. Someone has said this: every belie- every Christian represents a crucial premise, and together these premises comprise the socially embodied argument, which is the body of Christ. That is the church, the people of God. We ourselves, my friends, are apologetic arguments as we live godly lives before an unbelieving world. This is what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may what? That they may see your good works and then do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is, that the very things that you and I do in living holy lives, in living loving lives, has the amazing power to commend the wisdom of God in bringing people who once were lost in sin, transferring them into the kingdom of His dear Son, transforming their lives so that now they are displaying the glory of God. That is an apologetic argument. That is each believer representing a crucial premise and together as the church shouting forth the praises of God. This is why Paul says in in, uh, his uh, letter to the Corinthians that when an unbeliever walks into your, your midst and he sees you praising God and he recognizes what is going on, he can fall on his face and, and admit God is really here. That's what we want to be happening in our services, isn't it? That's what we want to be happening whenever we gather to worship God. We are commending the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God, particularly His wisdom displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ in saving sinners, reconciling humans to Himself. That's apologetics. Now, final two questions. What does apologetics do? How far can apologetics take us? 
and whom is apologetics for? I'll just give you the words, these four words. Uh, I'll put it on the screen for you. Defense, vindication, refutation, and persuasion. You don't have time to develop that. Defense, what's been called negative apologetics, says Christianity is not unreasonable. Uh, for example, some of you may be familiar with uh, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga. He answers what's called the evidentialist challenge to Christianity. People will say, hey, it's immoral. This is uh, famously articulated by a secular philosopher named W.K. Clifford. They say, it's immoral for anyone to believe anything on insufficient evidence. Now, you think about that. You could easily reply. To, the implication of that, quite, that statement is, well, then you don't have any grounds on which to make religious claims. Well, you could say, well, upon what evidence do you make that statement? What evidence can you, can you possibly offer me to believe that there is that it is immoral to believe anything on insufficient evidence. It, the, the statement itself is self-refuting. And so a clear thinker can see right through that, and that's what we call negative apologetics. We could say, well, Christianity is not unreasonable. You're trying to say that I am somehow sub-rational for believing that there is a God, and that this God has revealed himself in Scripture, and that this scriptural God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that is not sub-rational. It's eminently rational. It's eminently reasonable to think that there is a God who reveals himself in such a way. How far can apologetics take us? It could pave the way for faith, but only God can bring a person to faith in Christ. Apologetics is not in the business of defending God, nor of uh, tweaking theology to make it more palatable to a secular mind. That has been the danger of many apologists. It is simply to explain the Christian faith as it is. And finally, apologetics is for the hostile opponent, the honest skeptic, the humble learner. The hostile opponent, the, hum the honest skeptic, and the humble learner. And we must recognize that there is in all of us, I think, even as Christians, an honest skeptic. That we want it, we don't, we want not simply to believe, but we want to know why to believe, don't we? Because God has given us minds. And that's one of the whole reasons why we do apologetics. After this, Brother Dave is going to come next week. What's your lesson on, Brother? Answering atheists. Answering atheists. But the whole point of this has been to kind of set the uh, foundation, lay the groundwork for what apologetics is. Uh, help you understand that it is a broader scope than just an intellectual exercise. It involves not only truth, but beauty and goodness. And uh, that way we could commend what we believe to unbelievers and ourselves. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to understand more deeply uh, how to uh, defend the faith and what it means to do that. I pray that you'd help us all to be more holy, faithful, loving apologists who can give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in us. In Jesus' name, amen.